welcome to the 20th episode of Sound the Foghorn. As always, I am your host, Mark DeLuke. And today, we're going to take a little step away from what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. It's obvious Giants spring training season. Um, you know, we have some news on that front, and, and I'll run that down really quickly. Daniel Nunez, the Rule 5 selection, who was tracking, Greg, performing quite well in spring training, was tracking in the bullpen. He is going to undergo Tommy John surgery. He is out for the season. The Giants will be able to, you know, hold him on the 40-man roster. He won't have to be returned to the to, or offered back to the New York Mets, but he obviously won't be in the picture this season. And that might open up another spot in the bullpen for one of these minor league free agents who are, you know, performing well in camp. And that's Silvino Bracco, Dominique Leone, Nick Trapeano and uh, Junior Marte all are, you know, performing quite well so far. They could be now have a, a inside track for that last roster spot, but otherwise all is par for the course. Top prospects, Elliot Ramos and Joey Bart are doing well. Darren Ruff continues to scuffle a bit and his roster spot seems to be at risk, especially with players like younger players like Jason Vossler performing well. But aside from that, you've heard me talk plenty about the Giants, the Giants spring training over the last couple of weeks. And I, you know, imagine I like to kind of give you guys a chance to take in a uh, compare to another organization when you might not be as familiar with to kind of get a sense, you know, we compare the giants to the Dodgers and Padres constantly, but that's kind of unfair to the team. And also kind of, I think distorts our perception of where people, where franchises are at around the league. And so today I am joined by Patrick Ellington. You can follow him on Twitter at tangible underscore Uno. He is the co-host of the pinch talk podcast, and he is a, Base, a freelance writer. He just published the season preview for the Cleveland baseball team over at Baseball Prospectus. And we're going to talk about uh, the Cleveland baseball team here today, tied into the Giants with, I, I, I think, in a real interesting way. So, uh, Pat, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Um, first of all, thank you for having me on. Thank you for reaching out. Um, I appreciate it. I can't really remember when we connected, but it, it kind of just happened and uh, it, it was good. Um, I enjoy your baseball opinions. And to have, I really don't know much about the Giants, so to have someone there where I can kind of check in on them is cool because my only thought of Giants, I was born in 1998. We were, we, well, actually, you're probably around the same age. Yeah, I'm born in right? 98, too. We're, we're in okay. that same year. There we go. So my first affiliation with the Giants was Barry Bonds mm-hmm. when we were kids, obviously, and he was probably the, he's probably the greatest baseball player ever. If you take any kind of steroids, and I understand, but I, I, I don't really care. Um, yep. Is Barry Bonds? He, he was a Hall of Famer before he started taking steroids, which is a testament in itself. So that was there. And then as I got older and I started getting more into baseball, when you guys had that run of excellence during the uh, early to mid 2010s, mm-hmm. was also excellent because you guys had Tim Lincecum and Buster Posey and Pablo Sandoval and Matt, Madison Bumgarner, best postseason pitcher I've ever seen in my life. And that that core that that where you guys won three in the span of six years every other year pretty much, that was really cool to see as well. Hey, I, you know how to ingratiate yourself to, to the Giants fan as listeners here quickly. And, and so you know, um, I I know you you published uh, the Cleveland team preview, and we'll get to that. But I'm curious for you because you know we're kind of in the same boat. Yeah, you know, we're born the same year, similar age. We're in this kind of freelance writing kind of you know, thing right now, um, you know, I was lucky enough to have my first piece published um, at Baseball Prospectus last year. And I'm just curious for you, you know, how did it feel to kind of have that byline and, and, you know, see, you know, your name at, at Baseball Prospectus? It was excellent. I'm a huge sports fan throughout my life. Um, I've, I've also paid attention to sports media as well. And 
and hearing things about social media and how hard it is to break in, especially as a young person, because um, the industry doesn't treat young people well. Um, this isn't that. And my path to writing about baseball has also been very unique. Um, I've only been writing about baseball for about a year now. Um, I started writing my medium articles where I sent them around black baseball players from all over the African diaspora. I am a black man. So doing that to give introductory articles on young black players to people who don't really know about the game was, some, was the goal. And it's something I'm still doing now. Um, and you can find a link to those in my bio on Twitter. And it, it's really grown into me writing about the game and it's been wonderful. Baseball is my favorite sport and I, I never really planned for this to happen and it, I just kind of stumbled into it. And I've always used baseball perspectives to kind of learn about how to utilize this advanced statistics the correct way and have a cut, more cutting edge view of the game. And to get there kind of quickly, I should say, it was it was very gratifying. I think too, when I feel like you're doing the freelance thing, and I've done a little some things on Medium and elsewhere, is like you you kind of feel like you're writing into abyss almost at times, obviously, and and then yeah. to kind of you know see your name in a place that you've been reading for, for a long time is something that that is yeah uh, it was definitely something that was gratifying for me and I was I was happy well deserved and, and it was a great piece again going through um the various parts of the Cleveland baseball team also if you aren't someone who follows prospects I do highly recommend those medium posts they're really informative and dive into prospects on, on players around the league in different organizations and it's also just a, a good lens to you know get to know some players coming up that you know you might not be familiar with if you're only reading you know the top 50 prospects list and like you know your favorite team's prospect list I do highly recommend those medium posts as well so you know again you mentioned that Cleveland uh, baseball team preview you know I feel like most fans they know they traded Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco um and, you know, they probably know there's still some elite talent, you know, Shane Bieber and Jose Ramirez are I think the two names that come to mind, but otherwise, you know, there, there's a lot of, I, I look at this roster and it's like post prospects, some, you know, like Jake Bowers and, you know, Bradley Zimmers, so some other names that, you know, some interesting pieces, maybe a Tristan McKenzie here or there, but, you know, what has been Cleveland's approach to roster construction, you know, this year? Cleveland's approach to roster construction is, building a, a solid floor or a springboard with with veterans some of them elite some, some of them pretty good and then throwing a whole bunch of young talent at that springboard that may or may not stick now i made a similar metaphor in my baseball respects article and it's something i'm going to stick by because I'm, i feel like a lot of people immediately wrote off the team after they traded Lenore, like they're just going to tumble to the to the basement american league which I feel is very inaccurate because when you when you look at the the twenty five man roster, the variance is there, but it's a pretty decent ceiling and a and a low floor. But that's because the team is young, and the, and the team has gotten very young in the last couple of years. They've gotten rid of most of the veterans who were on the twenty sixteen World Series team, and the only two players that are on the twenty five man roster officially from that twenty sixteen World Series team are. Jose Ramirez and the catcher Roberto Perez. Wow. And a lot of uh, Cleveland Baseball team fans have, have are really 
how can I say this? They're they're kind of they feel kind of disconnected with the team because they traded off a lot of the veterans and a lot of the big na- big names and known name and prominent names, and known faces. But and they and they've all all automatically assumed it to be because of salary. But in my opinion, I really agree with the trades of Clevenger, Bauer, and Kluber when they happened, and I really like what they got back in those deals as well. So can you expand kind of a bit about, you know, because they've had this, they, I mean, not too long ago, they had this, it seemed like uh, embarrassment of riches when it came to starting pitchers. You know, you mentioned those three that they've traded and they still have right. Shane Bieber, you know, they still have Tristan McKenzie. So it was it a, you know, because they have been a team that ownership is not willing to spend to the levels of the biggest payrolls in the league but they also it seems like are generally you know they aren't with the tampas and the kansas or the pittsburghs where, where the ownership's putting huge uh, restrictions on salary so do you see that as it was a good use of trading from surplus or trading from something you had a lot of to try to strengthen yeah, elsewhere that, that, that's exactly what i see it as trading from surplus mm. and, and so i i agree with it again looking at it, just you know you see that there is a lot of variance you mentioned this use, but again, like, you know, players like Ramirez and Bieber do, I think, give you, um, you know, some obvious upside and floor there if some of the young guys can hit. They're in the same division as, you know, the White Sox and Twins, who are obviously, you know, trying to win. The White Sox especially have been um, aggressive over the past few off seasons, although we don't have to get into La Russa and Vada Meat and signing all that other stuff, but... Um, but they're in the same division as the Royals and Tigers, who I don't think anyone views as, you know, viable contenders, you know, this season either. So where do you see them falling in that AL Central mix? I see them being in the mix for most of the year. I have them finishing third right now before the season starts officially. Mm-hmm. I feel like sitting around, um, I say the floor is probably 80, 81 wins and the ceiling is 90, 91 wins. Yeah, seems about right. Who you know of those kind of that next tier? What this Cleveland front office is essentially betting, right? That they have pieces that are going to perform better than expectations. You know, are there any in particular that you're higher on, or that you think have a have a good chance to? Um, at the end of the season, we're looking at them as you know maybe not cornerstones, but at least like legitimate contributors going forward. Josh Naylor. Mm. Now, with Josh Naylor, he has very interesting traits to me because. He had a highly rated hit tool coming out of high school. Yeah. Um, I'm sure you know that. He was probably the best Canadian prospect of his class. And he was a the twelfth overall pick as a first baseman out of high school. You, you have to you have to be able to hit. <laughs> yeah. And he hit in the minor leagues. And the interesting underlying stats was he he struck out at a pretty low rate for someone that has as much raw power as he has. His his walk rate sat around 11 percent. Um, in the lower minors and even upper minors, he he wasn't walking as much, but he was still wasn't striking out at a at a, at a ridiculous clip. His first season AAA, first fifty four games, he put up a eleven percent K rate and a eleven percent walk rate, which is he was fifty a huge sign of future success, and he did that with a one twenty five WRC plus and a three ninety two weighted on base. Yeah. Now. In his first 134 games in the majors, he's walked 7% of the time, almost 8, and he struck out 20, which isn't awful, but he hasn't really hit as much as he thought have. But at 84 WRC plus for a 22, 22, 23-year-old, 
in his first major league stint. Mind you, 40 of those games came last year during the pandemic. So we, we kind of have to take that into, into account. It's not damning by any means. Yeah, I think Naylor's an interesting one too. I forgot about him. He's another one who's kind of, I mean, he still has a lot of, I think some of the prospect luster still on him, but definitely, um, you know, was once like a consensus, you know, top 50 prospect in baseball by some rankings. And after I think last season, last couple of years, it's kind of faded, but, but I, I liked him his first year in San Diego when he did debut in 2019, he looked, you know, he was still, I want to say 21, 22, you know, it hit, you know, I, I remember he put up like passable numbers. Like he didn't, you know, excel as a rookie, but you know, he was right around uh, league average as a hitter. And then last year things just cratered for him. But, you know, like you mentioned, the, the walk rates, the, the strikeout rates have, you know, been, you know, relatively solid, you know, nothing again, there's no like huge warning signs there. He's still young. And yeah, I mean, no doubt when you look at his minor league numbers, he hit relatively consistently. And again, when you take into account when he did quote unquote struggle, you know, he was a guy who was drafted out of high school. He was just young. So, you know, you have to take that into consideration as well when you're saying, well, didn't hit 330 at any level, or he did put up these huge numbers, but he was always someone. And I think for Giants fans, Elliot Ramos is a good comparison, uh, an outfielder who's uh, they, they drafted in the first round out of Puerto Rico uh, a few years ago, who has done well. He blew up kind of in 2019, but before that, hadn't he struggled in his first taste of pro full season ball, but he was like a 17 year old, 18 year old going up against, you know, mostly 22, 23 year olds at full season ball. So that's definitely uh, a name that I I think I'm right there with you, that he could be um, an interesting surprise this year. Yeah. And the cool thing about Josh Naylor is his younger brother, Bo Naylor is a top prospect prospect Mm -hmm. in the Cleveland baseball team system right now. And he's 21 years old, 21 year old high school catcher taken right out of high school. And he's already gonna. He's probably gonna be in Double A this year. Wow. Or he might start. He might start in High A. Excuse me, because he 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 started out in rookie ball and then he skipped short season when it was still there. RP mm-hmm. short season baseball. Yeah. And he went straight to Low A and he he held his own and he took steps forward with the defense as well, which is big because the attrition rate, lack of a better term for high school catchers, is is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. So um, that was good to see. But another individual that I really looked forward to is Daniel Johnson, um, right fielder we got from the Washington Nationals, who's the centerpiece in the Yang Gong still, another beloved veteran that the team traded. But I really like that trade simply because they got Daniel Johnson back. He's very toolsy, um, very athletic, has above average raw power, 70 grade speed, 70 grade throwing arm. And per fan graphs, and actually, 80 great throwing arm, excuse me. Wow. And he's a great as a 55 fielder in right field, but he could probably play in center. But uh, I think that the organization that the Cleveland baseball team front office has done the last couple of years, I say actually, during, a, during the Tito Francona era, a lot of young players didn't really get, haven't really got that many opportunities besides. Jose Ramirez, Francisco Lindor, but those are just two different individuals in general when you compare them to the average young player. Definitely. Um, I mean, even if the statistical performance was there, die test will tell you that those guys are good baseball players no matter where they're playing. Mm-hmm. And the underlying traits that they had as switch hitting middle infielders with ridiculous contact skills and baseball instincts 
you, you give them as many chances as they need until you know that they're not until you, until you're sure of what they are. Yeah. So and so we've seen the team frequently put give plate appearances and innings to quad A guys and veterans that may have a little bit left in the tank over young guys with a lot more upside who could put up league average numbers. And I find that to be very problematic for organization, especially organization that relies so much on acquiring and developing young talent, whether it be on an international market or do trades or do the draft. Yeah, I was going to say. Because Cleveland isn't going to sign any free agents. Mm -hmm. So they need to continually identify and acquire young talent through those three channels. I I was going to ask sort of, and my next question was, you know, kind of like, what is this team trying to do? Because, you know, when I look at it from afar, and again, I'm not, you know, I don't have a lot of history with following the team, you know, more than, you know, I think most people who are kind of following the sport, because I see them in not actually too dissimilar a place right now as a franchise from the Giants, um, because they they probably have some more like Bieber and Ramirez are elite talents that the Giants don't have. But in terms of their middle of their division, they are clearly a tier above the Kansas City and Detroit. I think the Giants are clearly a tier above a team like Colorado. But, you know, they, they don't have the depth and probably the, the depth of star power even of, of a team like the White Sox or for the Giants. You know, the Dodgers and Padres are the two that obviously come to mind. But, you know, with you used the phrase, and I, I absolutely love it from your, your preview at Baseball Perspectives. You talked about Cleveland is kind of on the scenic route to a rebuild. And I, I love that because the Giants, I feel like that describes where they've been in 2020 and 2019 in really good words where, you know, they haven't gone the way of the Astros, right? They haven't gone the way of the, the process 76ers or anything to that level where they've traded all their talent that they're, they're not, they're clearly not like trying to lose games to get the top pick. They're trying, they're trying to win with what they have, but are almost purposely kind of not acquiring necessarily the best pieces. They're not going to trade their prospects to acquire others they're going to be willing to trade a big league piece to get something they think might have more potential long term but the thing about san francisco as i look at it and again this could be changing there's still reason i think for question about this but historically that ownership group has been willing to spend with the you know the top teams in baseball where cleveland hasn't right cleveland is one that has kind of gone through again they're kind of the you know middle super, market yeah they are the supersized rays and how they've kind of handled this right where they're always trying to manage again like you said they're a middle market team right that's how they behave so where are they trying to go right because if some of these pieces do hit you're getting closer to well, i guess they have right do they have ramirez on a long-term contract and bieber under team control so like are, is there hope that they can kind of build something more that then they can you know the the bow nailers and the Nolan Jones, who I think is another well-known prospect in the system, some of the other prospects that then, you know, next year they are back at that 2016 form again. Like, you know, what is, where do you see uh, this front office, this organization views as their kind of short-term, long-term plan with this roster? So short-term, I think they want to compete as soon as possible and keep the the time between, between contention windows as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Now, the team likes the young talent it has, especially the pitching. The oldest individual in the starting rotation is Zach Plesak, who's, who's who just turned 26. Wow. 
and Shane Bieber doesn't turn 26 in a couple months. So you have Shane Bieber, Zach Plesak, Aaron Zabali, Tristan McKenzie, and Kyle Contro. But along with that, you still have more starting depth, such as Logan Allen, former top 100 prospect for the Padres, who you know about. Mm-hmm. Um, Eli Morgan is another name people should look out for. But similar to the teams of the, of the late 2010, 2010s, this Cleveland baseball team for the next decade is going to rely on pitching. Now, we know the organization has really taken a leap forward with the pitching during the 2010s with Corey Kluber, Carrasco, Bauer, Clevenger, et cetera. And rightfully so. They were probably the best organization developing starting pitching, homegrown starting pitching. Yeah. And, and Shane Bieber, please, Zach, and Zavali were all taken in the same draft. Wow. Which is rare. Aaron Zavali was a third round pick. Shane Bieber was a fourth round pick. And Zach Blazek was an 11th round pick. And they all made to the majors relatively fast, which is an, another big thing the organization does. They kind of push the pitching real far. And they, give, they actually give young pitching, young, the young pitchers a lot more, a, a lot longer leash in the, than the player, position players, which is also kind of problematic because we've seen guys like Gio Arcello, Jesus Aguilar, um, Yandy Diaz get traded or get DFA and leave going. Well, actually, not Gio, not Gio Arcello's case, because um, he got DFA by the by Tampa, by Toronto and the Yankees before he kind of broke out. So I'll, I'll scratch him off. But this team is going to rely on pitching, just just to be short. Yeah, it's it is. I think you bring up interesting thing about the position players. I think there's been a similar. Thing we've seen with the Giants, less so since Ron Zaidi was hired, but definitely in the last regime where, you know, the Giants would, I guess in the case of the Giants, it was mostly their own prospects, you know, they'd homegrown because they were really kind of acquiring younger players. But it's like with the Cleveland, it's like, you know, uh, you know, you can, you'll like a Bradley Zimmer as a prospect or, you know, you, you'll see they acquire Jake Bowers or Josh Naylor and you're like, I like that, you know, kind of a buy low uh, player who, who may not have the, you know, won't cost as much in a trade as they once would have. And and they're still young, still, you know, have that potential, but it does feel like they acquire this young, you mentioned, you know, very different kind of tool sets too. you know, Johnson, this high, high variance, you know, I think I'd imagine I'm not that familiar with him, but usually when you have the, you know, uh, elite speed, you know, some power potential and arm, there's probably some strikeouts that come with that, right? Where Naylor's someone who, you know, we've talked about, you know, being a more hit tool, uh, contact-oriented guy. But when you look over, it's like, it doesn't feel like these players are getting the opportunity to play through the growing pains that might come with younger players. Like, it's weird to me because Cleveland's a team, like you mentioned, that needs this young talent to succeed because they their ownership is not going to allow that front office to spend, but then I'll see that, you know, older players or, you know, uh, they'll sign a, uh, you know, or they'll, they'll give a Jordan Leplo or someone like that a longer leash. And again, it's not that Leplo isn't necessarily a good player. It's just that when you have, to me, it's like you can end up your two, three seasons down the line and you still don't know what you have in someone like a, a Naylor or a Bowers if you aren't going to give them the chance to succeed and fail. Do you think that's something that this season a lot of those guys you know, are going to get kind of that extended run 
so at the end of the year the front office can know okay Naylor or Bowers we now know whether they're someone we see as a long-term contributor or someone we're gonna have to move on from absolutely um mm -hmm. I know I would have liked to see it last year because they had a more merge of an area with the expanded playoffs and stuff I understand mm -hmm. the, the environment of the 60 game season and, and proper ramp up and stuff um kind of made that and baseball swing psychological and we've seen talented players who don't get good results and it gets in their head and they kind of tumble and never recover that, that seems to be forever happening in baseball but this this year the organization is definitely going to throw all the young players it, it, it could put against the wall and see if they stick this is a sink or swim year straight up and down now I may not like who they pick, but I mean, it is what it is. So just to kind of expand on your points, um, the only thing with Daniel Johnson is a hit tool. He's a lefty. And at the very worst, he's probably a, a, a above average platoon bat. And now since mm -hmm. he's a lefty, he's going to get him most of his plate appearances. Mm -hmm. And the tools are going to make that play up. So he has a, a, lot bit more a little bit more value. Now, they like Jordan Luplo and Jordan Luplo is a platoon bat and he's right-handed so he's going to go against lefties but against left-handers he's he had i think the third best aggressive plus against left-handed pitchers behind jd martinez and mike trout during 2019 so that's a very good platoon bat he's basically jock peterson if he made a right-handed mm -hmm. pitcher kind of flipped him up gotcha yeah and at the very least i would have liked to see jordan luplo and a dan Johnson platoon but the organization is going to put josh Naylor in right field this year which i disagree with because i think he should be at first base and expanding your point about players like Jake Bowers and Bobby Bradley, who are currently, currently in competition for the for the first base job. I really don't like either of them. Um, uh, they both had their warts. Um, I like I prefer Bradley over Bowers because Bradley has, in my opinion, exceptional amount of power that you need from first that you need from first base, just based on the offense requirements for position, based on the lack of defensive value the position gives you. So you really just want someone that's going to just hit the ball and hit the ball well and hit 30 home runs. Like, I'm pretty sure me, you both think 30 home runs, 150 strikeouts is perfectly fine from the first yep. base. Yep. And whatever you get on the defensive end is a bonus. Um, So now I feel like I would like to see Josh Neal at first base because that's his original position. That's probably the position he's the most comfortable at, which is going to make it easier for him to, to focus on hitting. And I just, and he's not a good outfielder. And another thing is the organization is really punting outfield defense this year by trying to make sure the outfit is good as, as good as it can be. Because last year, the Cleveland baseball team outfield was historically bad to a point where it was almost unsustainable. The former Ask Mercado we talked about, he had a negative wage way to runs created plus last year which i've never seen before and that line now i just want to see that i have i have a negative weighted runs created yeah well 128 174 174 triple slash will do that man yeah he he was just pounding the ball straight into the ground when he was making contact and he was really making contact he, mm -hmm. his strikeout rate was absurd i don't, I don't have it on hand yeah um, he spiked from it's weird because he was always someone who was viewed as sort of a, a contact oriented you know, uh, outfielder and his struck out third 29% of the time last season. So yeah, yeah that, that, it, it almost doubled. Yeah. And 
it was it was frustrating because I liked what Mikado did. Um, in 150 games he played mm-hmm. during 2019, he really he he was kind of what you want from a from a league average center fielder: 15 home runs, 15 steals, decent defense in center field, and league average bat. I'll take that every year, especially with what especially with outfielders team that's put out. Yeah. So I I, I mean I, I wouldn't say I'm actually have an optimistic look for this organization because I believe the front office the Cleveland Wrestling front office to be one of the best in baseball and they get they deserve the benefit of the doubt for what they did since the Tito Francona era began with building good teams and developing good players etc etc now can we I want to actually backtrack and go over to Francisco Lindor trade a bit yeah let's, let's, let's do like, that um, since I feel like that would be something people would like to hear about on out, that are on the outside looking in. Yeah. Um, for me, um, the, writing, the writing was on the wall when Paul Dolan, the owner of the team, said enjoy him when the conversation of a contract extension for Lindor was brought up two or three years ago now. Mm-hmm. And COVID also kind of threw a wrench in things because MLB teams had a real excuse to claim to be broke. Yeah. And it really drove trade value down because every every organization was trying to conserve salary or conserve money, I should say. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So people compare the Lindor and Mookie bets in the in the in the bets deals when yeah, you had a superstar on his last year's contract, but the Lindor deal was much more salary dump because they included Carlos Carrasco and Carlos Carrasco and Lindor were the two highest paid players on the team mm. at the time of the trade. Now, the organization did ask Carlos Carrasco for his permission, even though he didn't have his 10-5 rights yet, which I really thought was kind of ethical, mm-hmm. as ethical as you could get. But the bad thing about that trade was Carlos Carrasco had recently had a bowel cancer that he recovered from yeah. to come back and pitch. And he was a beloved member of the organization. He took two discount contract extensions to stay with the organization, mm-hmm. which is big because he was one of the best number twos in 2010. So I'm pretty sure he, he could have got a good amount of money. On a, yeah, he was. He's a, he's always been a favorite of mine. And um, you know, when the trade did get get announced, honestly, I mean, no doubt Lindor's the more you know better player and the more valuable player than than. Carrasco, especially, you know, given Carrasco's age, but that was something for, for, from watching from the Mets, think about from the Mets side, I was, you know, you're not only getting someone like Lindor, you're getting, you know, Carrasco who, you know, really aside from 2019 has been a, just a really consistently good pitcher. Yeah. He's been a consistent number two. Yeah. And to the Bauer, Kluber, Clemenger and Lindor deal has happened in a, two-year time span has really alienated casual fans mm-hmm. i understand but a lot of those same casual fans are browns fans and <laughs> they they get and the browns have been one of the worst professional sport organizations in in our lifetime they they are the punchline of 80 percent of sports jokes yeah and literally and like this is the first time they've They've legitimately been a respectable organization since we've been alive. Yeah, yeah. That's that's <laughs> man. Just just to put it that way. Yep. And well, and then you, I'm sure you know about the whole fascination people have with top 100 prospects when when teams trade 
guys and fans say, okay, how many top 100 prospects did they get for mm-hmm. this guy? When, when it doesn't really work like that. And I have this right here from one of my articles I wrote for a, a media platform for called Breton Heroics about the packages they've got back. The team got mm-hmm. back six players for Mike Clevenger and they got back five for Framil Race. I mean, for Trevor Bauer. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they got, I've categorized it into short term additions. You have a long term addition with far future impact and a long term addition with near future impact to kind of categorize it. Now, in Trevor Bauer deal, yeah, SLP was on expiring contract, so he was out after that year. And originally, they were getting Yasiel P, Scott Moss, and Taylor Trammell from the Bauer, from, from for Trevor Bauer, and I think some other pieces. But they flipped Trevor Trammell to Taylor Trammell. I'm sorry, I messed up his name. To the Padres, and they got Framo Reyes, Logan Allen, Victor Nova, and Victor Nova, who was who was a lottery ticket rookie from rookie mm-hmm. ball. Now. We know what Frame Reyes is. He's a yeah. he's a DH guy, but he's going to give you 30 home runs a year. And he's tw- he was 22, 23 years old at the time of the trade and under team control. Um, Logan Allen wasn't exactly ready yet, even though he already made his debut. And he was a former top one prospect. He had a lot of potential. And we choose organization take starting pitchers and transforming them into number threes out worse. And one big thing for me, and Logan Allen actually might be in the rotation this year. So, and with the Mike Clevenger deal with trading to the Padres, um, they got back Austin Hedges, who's a short-term addition, but the Cleveland baseball team really values defense for catchers. So, if you got a guy who's hitting 200, they don't care because it's pitching, because the organization is so centered around pitching. You want to you want a catcher that's going to be know how to handle pitching stuff mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Roberto Perez and Austin Hedges are the two best defensive catchers in baseball so I understand and I agree with that theory I feel like people don't really understand how hard it is to catch and how grueling that is on the body let alone having to manage a major league pitching staff and manage how to being a good hitter yeah I mean Giants fans have seen you know firsthand right I mean the early 2010 dynasty, right, is, you know, Buster Posey gave them such a huge advantage over other teams because Posey was the rare guy who was an elite defensive catcher and for a good amount of time was a, you know, above average and, you know, and, MVP caliber yeah, hit. elite hitter too, right? And, and and we've seen, you know, what what the toll it's taken on his body. Obviously, he opted out last season, so there's some hope maybe, you know, with that kind of time off, he can have a little rejuvenated offensive season. But but no doubt, I mean, you know, Giants fans have been spoiled recently. You know, I think, you know, Joey Bart, their top pick from a few years ago was a catcher. And I think you're seeing, you know, this kind of mix of expectations where it's like Bart's a really good prospect. He, I think, is going to be a really good big league catcher, you know, an everyday player. But I think Giants fans have to recal are now sort of having to recalibrate a really good everyday catcher you know, that's not Buster Posey, right? Like, like he is, he's going, you know, he's the exception that really proves a rule here. Um, and, and Cleveland, I think has said, you know, it's like, we're gonna, we're gonna lean into, you know, let's just get, you know, really good framers. Like you said, players who have history of being, you know, good with pitching staffs and, and getting the most out of them because, you know, trying to find a guy who can do that and be good offensively 
is you know going to take up a lot of resources and you know like you mentioned that historical attrition rate of you know high school catchers especially you know where uh you know and, and catchers really in, in general is just always comes with a whole lot of added risk that you know a first baseman or a shortstop or center fielder generally don't yeah and another thing for me is with bus with joy bart i really feel like the the organization is kind of rushing him mm-hmm. in my personal opinion i really feel like he you might you guys might be mike to knowing him if you understand the reference i'm making yeah no i, I do I, I mean bart was someone too i was lower on I think the most at the draft, because I thought he reminded me of Zanino. And I see a lot of what you're talking about. Because, yeah, last year, I think the team – and it'll be interesting to see how the team handles it this year, because I think there was a lot of ways to interpret them promoting him to the big league roster last year. And I think it was truly out of Posey opted out, and they were in, you know, the expanded playoff contention, and catcher was their worst spot. And so they went yeah. out and said, we're going to, you know, Bart – we might actually be – our best catcher and some fans would say he was the best catcher last year. I still think Chadwick Trump was actually um, a better option. And I wanted to see him get a bigger look, but regardless, I think it's pretty clear this year, right? Posey's back. They signed Kurt Casali, who's been a solid kind of platoon um, rotational uh, catcher with, with Cincinnati. So he's the backup. They brought Trump back. Um, and so I, I do think the giants made a concerted effort this off season to say, you know, you know, Bart, you can kind of draw some connections, you know, in that, right, they both got rushed. I think both made their big leagues debuts before you'd say they were ready. But I think what the Giants have said, which is different than what the Mariners have done was, you know, we'll see how it plays out, obviously, and catchers a position where there's a lot of injuries. And that's another um, sort of uncertainty to this. But the Giants are I'm making really- a point of Bart is not going to be uh, we don't want to force Bart to have to you know play in the big leagues until he's ready again right and so it'll yeah. be interesting to see how that plays out so I, I kind of get it last year with considering he will be sitting at the alternate site mm-hmm. just rotting away catching batting practice and stuff so yeah, I, yeah. I mean and, and when catching you you, you want to keep those guys engaged and learning because it's they're always learning whether it be new pitchers or definitely new game plans and then they have to learn about hitters and their division and then that changes and that changes the side division there's so many intricacies and you know secrecies with with, with catching at prof- let alone professionally at the major league is on a whole nother level that i mean you, you pretty much have to do baseball savant to be a catcher yeah and to bring that back around to organization cleveland hasn't had a good catcher and hasn't developed a good catcher in a long time. Uh, Roberto Perez is always a glove first guy in the minors. He was like a 30th to 31st overall, 30, 30 or 31st round pick. Mm-hmm. And he made it. Um, but the organization hasn't really been good at developing catchers. Um, and you guys also took Patrick Bailey in the draft, which yeah. I really liked and was a kind of a giant thing. Um, concerning the culture you guys have with the catchers now with, with posing and, and stuff. But I feel like with with Joey Bart, it just, it just kind of shows that even even if he, he still might not be what you expected the second overall pick to be if he makes it. Um, well, and also like even if you know he does kind of you know it's like if he ends up hitting you know two thirty with twenty home runs a year for like a 
five-year peak, right? And assuming he walks enough where he has like a 320, 330 on base, like, and he's good defensively. And he's like, playing goal, goal defense. Right, that's like a top that, five catcher. Exactly. That's probably like a three, four war a year player. It's just, you know, baseball fans are so calibrated to it's like a second or off pick. You know, if I tell you he's going to hit, you know, 240 with 20 homers, like that's a disappointment. But if he's, you know, playing the defense that he's capable of and if he's, you know, walking enough that, you know, he's not, you know, pushing a 280 on base or something, that is a really good player. It's just, you know, we got, you know, again, Buster Posey's MVP year, according to Fangraphs, he had he put up 10 wins above replacement. You know, like that is not something that is a reasonable expectation of anyone. And it's one, um, again, I think it's it's interesting to compare these two orgs with that. And, you know, we've seen Cleveland, you know, they, again, you know, they took Naylor, um, you know, who's a high school catcher, but he also is someone who I think I've seen some people say, like, he's capable of hitting, even if playing every day, even if he has to move away from catcher, where, like yeah. you said, the Giants have invested in players, you know, Posey was obviously one who he was going to be a catcher. Bart was one where everyone, there's no question about him being better at a catcher. And Bailey's a, a third now um, that they've invested highly um, in, you know, Bart and Bailey in relatively recent years. So they've prioritized trying to kind of get that guy where Cleveland has said, you know, let's prioritize, you know, getting these pitchers. And, you know, Giants have done the opposite. They really haven't drafted pitchers highly. They haven't prioritized that in their player development. And that's where, Fans, uh, uh, it is kind of actually interesting. Again, part of the reason that I like the idea of comparing these two orgs is that um, they've kind of approached this and team building in, in different ways. The Giants have been about accumulating, you know, offensive players. Um, you know, I mean, in the 2010s, it was about pitching, but I mean, in this more recent iteration, their farm system is much more loaded with hitters than it is at pitchers, especially at the top. You know, their their team itself, right? You know, you can. Their best pitcher is probably Kevin Gaussman and their second best is might be Johnny Cueto. And Cueto's obviously far removed from his peak performances where offensively, you know, Mike Yastrzemski's a guy, they, you know, kind of found and made out of nowhere and into well, to your, he also himself, I'm not, the team isn't the only team that person that deserves credit, but they acquired him for, for relatively nothing. And he, you know, was number eight in the MVP voting last year, you know, mm-hmm. breaks out. So um, they, they've done a really good job on the offensive side. Cleveland's one that while they've, you know, found these, you know, developed these Lindors and, and Ramirez is the offense has actually been the thing that's held them back because they've done an elite job of accumulating starting pitchers and, and relievers to put together a really good pitching staff. Yeah. So Cleveland was really had a, was really had a, had a lot of bad luck with developing outfielders in the 2010s. Mm-hmm. Now they had, they've had no issue developing infielders in a long time. The last three long-term shortstops for the Cleveland baseball team have been Omar Vizquel, Drew Cabrera, and Jose, and Francisco Lindor. Yeah, with as with Johnny Peralta and and Jose Ramirez making cameos there before moving to third. I mean, you really can't get much better than that. No, yeah, that's that's uh, lots of teams go you know <laughs> decades chasing one of those guys. Yeah, and. And they had Jason Kibben as a second base during the 2010s, and he was above average second baseman for a lot of those years. The last above average outfielder this team had was for more than a year, more than a year's worth of, of, of value was Grady Sizemore. Yeah. And the last truly above average catcher they had was Victor Martinez. But he was mostly a bat first guy. He wasn't really good mm-hmm. defensively. Um, and he probably wouldn't have been a defender and he probably wouldn't have been a, a catcher, even a backup catcher in today's MLB, just based on 
framing statistics and all that, but he might have been a good framer and they didn't have the stats back in to quantify it and could have brought seasons down. But who knows? Um, 2000 baseball is just so odd, too, looking back on it. <laughs> yeah. Com- comparing the eras and, and just how the game's game has changed, and obviously, you know, pitching, I think, is, is the most obvious one where, um, you know, we talk, you know, I think lots of people sort of see the, saw the analytics and, and the launch angles, right? That was the first thing that people, you know, players changing their swings. But I think honestly, the, the larger jump, right, has been on the pitching side where you're seeing players, you know, uh, coaches, uh, players with a better understanding, like biomechanics, right? You're seeing all these guys who are gaining velocity, right? And, and you know, we've seen that obviously with bullpens where, you know, 95 is, is almost below average for, for a lot of relief pitchers. And we're seeing, you know, designing these really tight sliders, right? Like, like pitch development, I think has been one. And again, Cleveland's been on the forefront of this, right? Yeah. Where I, can, I can elaborate on that. Yeah, go ahead. So Cleveland has been one of the best organizations at getting guys to develop velocity um, through pitching mechanics and stuff like that. They've been um, a trend they've they've used is shortening arm actions mm. that we've seen now. Um, like with Lucas Giolito when he kind of stopped bringing his arm extended and he kind of did an L shape and and kind of bring the ball from behind his ear and throwing it like a football. Mm-hmm. Um, something we've seen they did that with Shane Bieber and Zach Plesac in the minor leagues and they took that leap forward in development velocity. And Shane Bieber is my primary example because his development as a professional has been mind-boggling. Yeah. I mean, when you look at the minor league numbers, the walk rates you were putting up in the minor leagues were absurd to me. Just he had like a he didn't walk over one batter per nine in the minor leagues until he got triple A. Yeah. Yeah, I remember um, when he came out of the draft from UC Santa Barbara, you know, he was – and the reason he ends up going, I think it was – you mentioned the fourth round, is at UCSB, he was this, like, command pitchability guy. And there were questions, which is crazy to think about now. There were questions about, like, the, the biggest concern was, does he have strong enough stuff to stick in a big league rotation? Because I, mm-hmm. I, I want to say, you know, at UCSB, I think he had ERAs in the twos. You know, he was there – best starter you know he he didn't he didn't strike out a batter in inning but he he had i think it was like 29 walks in 240 innings or something like that i mean it was yeah he was a command guy yeah he was was, this one he was sitting like 89 exactly and and then cleveland took this guy and you know not only did the command play and maintain it but then on top of that he he's ended up with this strong arsenal yeah it's been an incredible watch so i think a characteristic with cleveland the developing pitchers is um they like guys that can limit and they like college guys especially that can limit the walks for nine to below two and can strike out over a batter per inning now Shane Bieber wasn't that but when you have 80 grade command like that your stuff is going to play up because you you're going to put it in places where you can where guys aren't going to be able to hit it most of the time now with the fastball, there's a huge room for error there when you're hitting when you're sitting 89, whether it be in college or in the professional as a professional. And with Bieber, the velocity jump 
wasn't the only big thing, but also his, his arsenal, Dave refines arsenal. The Cleveland organization has been very good at helping guys develop sliders and breaking balls and stuff like that. Um, and, and change-ups in general. Just arsenals in general, they've been good at, whether it be spin rate and stuff like that, pronating and all the other buzzwords. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, they, they've really been cutting-edge organization. Um, and while a lot of people unfairly contribute to culture they built to, to Trevor Bauer and people kind of use him to personify the pitching evolution baseball that's seen, I feel like that's very disingenuous. Yeah. Um, and with the organization, it's been a characteristic that they repeated with Zach Plesak and Aaron Zavali, who I feel like are kind of breakout candidates for me, even though kind of Plesak already had his kind of breakout year last year. Um, yeah, they're they're kind of in that. I mean, again, Bieber isn't you know kind of Bieber is probably the one in a million, but I mean in terms of like in that similar role where their pitchability, you know command guys but but might be able to again if cleveland's able to help them take another step or or maximize their arsenals that they could you know be more rather than the you know most people on prize a four three if they could be a three two even right or two three right that's that's a huge boon for the rotation exactly and we've already seen them do that with aaron savali this year so over the offseason aaron savali worked with ruben diablo who's like the 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 brain or one of the brain trusts um, of the Cleveland Pitcher Factory, as it's now known. And he overhauled his delivery, so he went through shorter arm action with the with the L shape. Um, and he scratched his changeup and it swapped it out for a split changeup based on like a forkball grip. And it, it goes better with Arsenal, which is um Aaron Zavali has a is very unique because he throws like five pitches. Throws like five or six pitches. So Aaron Zavali throws a four-seamer, two-seamer, a cutter, slider, changeup, and a curveball. And he has 60-grade command. He, he, he's not really – he doesn't walk a lot of guys either. And for, for me, um, I feel like he has a lot of potential. He, he reminds me of Kluber with the way he mm. attacks, not based on results, but based on stuff. He mostly uses his two-seamer. He's the east-west pitcher. He mostly uses his two-seamer to get over. And he also uses a cutter in terms of cutter with that. And he also tells a slider with that. But he has another wrinkle by having a 12-6 curveball and the split changeup to, to go. So he's he's a mixture of an east-west and north-south pitcher more than we've seen the trend of north-south pitchers in baseball now yep. during the 2010s with the high four-seamer breaking stuff down or down in the way. So he's a bit of a throwback to what we to what me you saw growing up. Yeah, but, as re, as we're seeing these guys um, specialize, and I'll get you in here if you have another comment on it. But um, you know, as we're seeing, kind of he's sort of a, a twist on. We're seeing you know teams. Uh, recommend right to their pitchers starters and relievers or relievers and starters i should say to you know kind of pare down right and focus on like having two to three really good pitches and you know centralizing and that's something we've seen the giants do but but you know having some of the four or five pitch arsenals is something you don't really see um any pitcher who is willing to use all those pitches consistently so i've taken up uh plenty of your time as is i think it's really interesting to think about 
Cleveland, as you know, again, this team that made the World Series in, in 2016, had this young, you know, a young core, and now they're kind of have you know very little carryover from it, um, are trying to kind of build something again from the middle market, but but ultimately in this similar middle tier that I think the Giants and, and a lot of teams, frankly, most teams around baseball kind of find themselves in right now. And, and, you know, there's a separate conversation you had about the financial element and how, you know, Cleveland ownerships choosing a lot of ways to put them in this situation. But, you know, in terms of where they are, it's just, I think it's interesting to contrast where the Giants have kind of prioritized their development on the offensive side, where Cleveland's prioritized the pitching side and, and, um, where now kind of both the Giants are taking all these these flyers on these Aaron Sanchez's and these Alex Woods um, and claiming almost every pitcher off waivers. It seems like Cleveland's kind of been doing that with outfielders for, for a few years now. But before I get you out of here, I want to talk about something that I, I know for both of us, uh, we are passionate about something. I don't think enough baseball fans in the U.S. especially know about. And, um, you know, frankly, baseball animes in general are something I don't think they know about and get enough attention. And Ace of Diamond is, uh, I think, it's my favorite. I'm guessing it's your favorite as well. But let's just give the people a pitch. Like, why should someone who's a baseball fan check out uh, Ace of Diamond? It's about as realistic a, of a baseball anime that you're going to see. And it, it, it gives you a, a bigger... Uh, a more of an inside look at baseball culture in general. And it doesn't just focus on one team. It goes very in depth in the other teams as well. And the culture they built is not just on the field, it's off the field where you, where you see guys taking batting practice and learning new pitches and trying to come back from injuries and them and managers discussing what coaches, what they should do about roster construction and lineup construction. It's everything a, a baseball narrative will want in the anime. Yeah, it's and I what I like about it too is it's so for those who aren't familiar, um, there's basically the in Japan there's essentially a high school baseball tournament that almost every high school in the country competes in, and there isn't really a comparison to the United States. I think the closest thing you could say is actually like March Madness or like kind of the college basketball absolutely tournament. But it's where it, so if you imagine it's all these high schools, um, and again. Baseball, if you're doing the comparative popularity, baseball is more like American football here in the United States, in Japan. It is the sport. And so you have mm -hmm. all these high schools. And so this, um, I believe it's based on a manga. I'm assuming these most animes are. And Yeah, um, I, I, I read them. I'm actually reading the manga currently. I'm oh. huge, I actually watch more manga than I do anime. So <laughs> Nice. And um, it, it follows this, at least focuses on this one specific high school, this one specific kind of player goes through it. But like you said, it just does a great job of you end up sort of getting to know not only, you know, all of the players on these teams, um, even the coaches on these teams, you get these really intricate and nuanced um, backstories and it doesn't do it in a cliche way. And I think what's also really cool and interesting about it is, you know, it has, it like gets into like some advanced, you know, like analytic stuff. You know, it talks about like spin rate and like what makes this pitch play differently than others but it also is doing things in a way that if you aren't someone who's super into the nuances of baseball or even if you're not a baseball fan at all you can get into it because it, it, it is so it has such compelling characters and it you know almost everything gets explained at some point at you know a very basic kind of straightforward level but then it's not doing the thing that i think a lot of baseball 
shows that I, I have interacted with that frustrate me is when they oversimplify or they, they simplify it so sort of more people, even non-baseball fans, can get into it. But then they do that at the expense of sort of the reality of the sport. And this doesn't do that. It like gives you kind of the basic elements of the sport. It, it explains it. You don't need to understand the in-depth stuff. But it's also like true to the sport um, down to almost every detail that it's just it's so engrossing um, in so many ways. And there's a lot of episodes online. Trust me, you can if you're looking for something to do and take up a lot of time. I think uh, this is this is a great place to start. Yeah, it has three seasons and every season has like 30 episodes. Yeah. And that was a great point you made. It it, it doesn't come at the expense of the sport. It, it kind of forces you to learn and remember things about the mm-hmm. sport because of the way they craft every player and attention to detail with cra- crafting such a large cast yeah. is just a testament in itself. And I'm a screenwriter. That's what I go to school for. Mm. So that's something I'll, I'll marvel at, at making baseball compelling considering how unappealing it is to the average person just based on <laughs> the fact that most people our age and most people that watch anime have the attention span of a, of a squirrel. And baseball is more of a relaxed pace and the game within the game is has a lot more attention to detail and et cetera, et cetera. It's not like, it's, it's, just, it's, it's just very different compared to other sports. Mm-hmm. It's extremely unique. Yeah. It's yeah. very it's, it's very niche and it, it makes it compelling. And, and one thing I really enjoy is how they in, induce the parity and the, how much the game hinges on failure mm-hmm. as well. That's that's the most kind of thing for me because it puts the characters in a predicament where you you care about these characters regardless of them not winning all the time mm-hmm. like you win in a typical sports anime where it's about the underdogs who go on some amazing run like uh, Kuroko no Basket or something yeah um, and and that the success like you see earned. Yeah. And that like you see success is something that's kind of like fungible, like it changes, right? Like, you know, the goal at the beginning of the season might be to win a championship. And then the goal for one player might just be to like make the second string and like get to participate in practice with the first stringers. And like, and like, you know, like you're also seeing like, again, like it's just a really like, it's again, it's so compelling, but I think part of what's so compelling about it is it's so like honest and real in so many ways that like, again, like, you're getting the complexity of not just the star player or again, it's Ace of Diamond, the ace pitcher, but you're also getting that of like the third string catcher or the 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 player in their last year of high school who's never cracked um, the lineup. Like you're getting um, that about everyone. And so you're not just getting the star story. You're not just getting the cliche. You're getting this really um, holistic view of the sport, of like the the culture within the sport here and, and and all of that and the parallels how you might have a utility guy on a major league team yep. training who's trying to fight his way into a ball club or or a young guy who's trying to break through or a pitcher or like with um the the half american uh catcher who's coming back from injury mm-hmm. yeah chris yeah um, chris yeah and how him and Satomura uh, were having friction at first because mm-hmm. he misunderstood. And the growth of, of the protagonist is, is is amazing in itself too because he's such a good character. Mm-hmm. 
the the steps in the story are, are are incremental at times and you see the team take big steps and you see the team take steps backwards but it, it doesn't just you know one thing i like it doesn't just focus on sato you, you see whole epi- almost whole episodes dedicated to the characters and on other teams and stuff to to explain more scenarios to make it even more compelling and that's and that's probably the the thing that stands out most about the show to me then once again going back to think of it handles the so many different faces and, and names very well and it shows how many how many cells of baseball there are that that teams themselves could play and that individuals themselves could play like um it's not baseball has so many more archetypes and a lot of other sports just kind of based on the sheer number of individuals there are yeah. And the the anime really emphasizes that very, very well. Definitely. Um, Pat, thank you for taking the time um, to talk to me today. Uh, again, congrats on the piece over at Baseball um, Prospectus. But um, where can uh, the people find your work and keep up with what you're doing? Um, so I cover the Cleveland baseball team for a media platform called Overtime Heroics. Um. I, my minimum there is three articles a month. So I, you will see three articles a month from me over there. I also have my medium articles in my Twitter bio. My Twitter is tangible underscore uno. Um, the Pinch Talk podcast is my podcast. We're on all the major platforms and YouTube. Our Twitter for that is at Pinch Talk Pod. Um, we also have a hashtag called Baseball Terms 101 where we kind of have a, a database that's really available on Twitter for casual fans and people that aren't fans of the game in order to introduce them to the game. And that that's everything. Hey, man, listen, I am, again, so happy we finally got to have you on. And, uh, again, I think, you know, I, I listened to the podcast. I know there's plenty more we could talk about, whether it's the financial side of the sport and rule changes, all, all these other things. And I will make sure to have you back here at some point um down the line but uh thanks again for coming on today uh mark thank you for having me um i really appreciate you reaching out and doing this um i would love to be on the podcast again so hey can't wait and so this has been the 20th episode of sound the foghorn as always i am your host mark deluki you can follow me on twitter at mad deluki that is m-a-d-d-e-l-u-c-c-h-i and if you listen to the podcast make sure to leave that five star review and if you do include a question and i will answer it alongside my guest on a future episode we have a couple of those backlog that i'm gonna uh, next week we're gonna be answering a bunch of those um we'll see if we have a guest on we're gonna try to switch things up with the format as we move to the regular season we're probably gonna move to twice a week rather than once a week once with a guest once without a guest so we'll have more details on that in the coming days but until next time as always stay safe and have a wonderful week